Hi, everybody. My name is Greg Hancock, and along with my friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we follow up last week's discussion about missing data by switching from defense to offense, exploring designs in which we strategically plan to have missing data. We also mention the Kenny G paternity test, every trumpet player's sworn duty, tied 16th notes, Benny Unza Jets, the Durham Bullhorns, tortured metaphors, wastebasket toilets, free steak knives, 81 minutes, doors and flashlights, Alyssa J and Sean, and respecting the dart. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hey, how you doing? Good, man. How you doing this morning? I am okay. Very okay, actually. I was thinking about something that makes me incredibly happy, and I want to share that with you. You might not know what it is, but I'm going to share that with you, okay? Okay. I do uh, not know what it is, yeah. and so let's see where this goes. It involves you, believe it or not. So one of just these incredibly happy things for me is the thought of when you come up to my house, you and my son Tate jam together. So you guys play music together, and I have to tell you, it is one of the happiest things for me. Truly, truly, truly. And I don't, I don't know that any of our listeners know this about you yet, but you're you're actually a very accomplished musician. Uh, I don't know about the accomplished part, but I enjoy it. I have a long list of things I enjoy that I'm not particularly good at. And uh, I do play trumpet. Um, nothing professional. It's all just community bands, but it is certainly the highlight of my week. Well, you can certainly hang with a 12-year-old. <laughs> Did you take lessons as a kid or did you do that mainly as so an adult? So I did. I uh, started out as a kid on piano, the usual mom making me do that. Mm-hmm. I despised it, but learned music there. And then I moved to trumpet and played all the way up through high school. And then I set it aside, hung on to my horn. My dad bought it for me and I hung on to it for 25, 30 years And interestingly, I had an injury to my shoulder and I had surgery and I was immobilized for something like 10 or 12 weeks. And I'm not a TV watcher to begin with. Mm -hmm. And if I watched one more hour of TV, I was going to throw myself out the window, (laughs) which would have been a gesture at best because it was on the first floor. But I, with one arm, dug my trumpet out of the closet and played with one hand. Mm -hmm. And so that was about eight years ago. And that's how I got back into it. So yeah, I play every day. I'm in two or three different bands. Love it. Yeah, that is spectacular. And I I really do love watching the two of you play jazz and all of that stuff. I was forced to take music as a kid also. uh, And it was (laughs) piano. You know, the deal was I wasn't forced to practice, but I was guilted into practicing. And I took piano for, I was like 11 or 12 years. And the lady who was my piano instructor, she was an older German lady. And of course, I played all kinds of classical stuff, but I kept gravitating toward pop. For example, Elton John and and Billy Joel. A bottle of white, a bottle of red, that kind of stuff. You know, she would say, you know, Gregory, my boy, what will we be playing this week? I would bring out something that was more pop oriented that I had bought at a music store, but I got her to agree that I should be able to play a mix of contemporary as well as classical stuff. And I remember I was playing the song Benny and the Jets, um, Mm -hmm. which is a perfect example of this teacher. So I I was playing Benny and the Jets, and (laughs) she showed me how it should be played, right? So I was playing it, and then she, you know, sort of (laughs) scoots me over, and she sits down at the thing, and she starts playing it in every song. It didn't matter. Every pop song, she turned into a march. So she is literally... (laughs) She's sight reading Benny and the Jets. It's got words on it. And she's going, yeah, yeah, und Benny und the Jets, yeah. Mm, do, do, mm, mm. So it every single song. But yeah, I did that for, and, and, I, and I actually miss it. And we don't have a piano mm. at home, but I, but I think I need to rectify that for sure. I love that you were involved in music. So I go up every now and then and visit Greg and I throw my trumpet in the car and his son and I will jam in the living room. And, and he's a much better musician than I am at 12 years old as he is a very talented kid. But every now and then you observe 
a parent express true pride in their child. And I have not seen an expression of pride as Greg did one night. Tate and I were jamming and Greg had his feet up on the table and was just watching. And we took a pause and I told Tate a standard joke. You can use this for anything, right? You just fill in the names. But I said, all right, Tate, as we're changing music, I said, you walk into a room and there are three people at a table. There's Hitler, Stalin, and Kenny G. I said, in the middle of the table is a loaded gun with two bullets. What do you do? And Tate didn't say a word, and his face got very serious, and he stared at the floor, and all of a sudden he lit up, and he said, you shoot Kenny G twice. (laughs) Which is, of course, the answer. Greg got up, walked across the room, and embraced him. With a love and pride that I rarely have seen between a parent and a child. It was the paternity test that I needed. (laughs) (laughs) But it's funny that you raise this. This truly is purely coincidental and is associated with today's topic. I had a rehearsal last night Mm -hmm. for band, the Durham Bullhorns. It's a trumpet ensemble. There are about 10 of us. It is the highlight of going out in the evening for me. It's great fun. We were practicing a piece last night. We got a gig coming up in a couple of weeks. At the end, there's a masked piece where all the bands play Bridge Over Troubled Waters. Mm -hmm. All right. So they're literally going to be like 25 brass musicians playing this. And because of the way it's set up, they assigned us just the third and fourth part. All right, so there are 10 of us. Five are on the third part. Five are on the fourth part. And it's a very tricky composition with all of these off-tempo, off-beat kinds of things, tied 16th notes. It drives you crazy. But we were rehearsing it last night, and it was almost impossible because the pieces that we have make no sense. Mm-hmm without the rest of the ensemble. We count three measures and then we have like eight beats of these completely weird ass tempos and then eight beats of silence and then four beats of these weird tempos. And honestly, I was sitting there last night and thinking how similar this is to what we're gonna talk about today, which are planned missing designs. Or data, which is my four measures of these completely weird tied 16th notes, make no sense by itself. Mm -hmm. But when you contribute it to the ensemble as a whole, then of course it makes absolute perfect sense. And so you can picture a score. Everybody has seen in some way or another a score. Musical score. A musical score, thank you. (laughs) Each of us has a part in front of us that has our own music, but the conductor has a score that has all the music in front of them stacked on top of each other. And you can look down a single measure vertically And when you aggregate across all the staves to look across the entire set of parts, then that's the entire composition. I found it very interesting in that we can design studies where in isolation, any subset of datum maybe doesn't make sense on its own. But when you aggregate across the entirety, then you have the composition as a whole. I just thought that was a really coincidental thing as I'm sitting there trying to count out these tied 16ths, which, by the way, I was not (laughs) able to. I can have Tate help you with that. Um, If you would not mind, I would appreciate that. (laughs) That is a perfect example, I think. It aligns with the way I think about data and then missing data, generally speaking, that the data carries some melody, right? And the melody is like a story. And different parts of the data contribute to different aspects of that melody and help you to understand what's going on. And of course, what we mean analytically are the parameters, but different aspects of the data contribute to that. And sometimes we lose a note. Sometimes we lose an instrument. Sometimes things happen. And the question is how much of that information is still conveyed. So with or without your permission, I think we are just going to torture the hell out of this metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, so business as usual then. There you go. So let's get into some plan missing data stuff. Now, we telegraphed this at the end of a prior episode on missing data. Would you be okay just sort of giving us a quick roundup of the critical stuff that we need to bring over from that episode in case people haven't uh, haven't heard that one? Yes. 
Also, jumping back very briefly, we commented on this in early, early episodes, but our opening theme song is Tate Mm -hmm. just jamming on his saxophone in his bedroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think you recorded that on your cell phone. Yep, on my cell phone with him in his underwear on a summer afternoon or evening when it was (laughs) really hot. He was miserable, but he's really happy now. Very happy with it. That you just told several thousand people that he was playing in his underwear? Yeah, well. Oh, yeah, I bet he's super happy. All right, so where did we leave off? Now, here's the funny thing. When we recorded the original Missing Data episode, this was supposed to be part of that episode. But when Greg and I start this, we both commit to doing no more than 60 minutes of conversation. Hard stop. Hard stop. Hard stop, hell or high water. And at 81 minutes, I'm waving at Greg that we need to stop. So this was intended to be on the prior episode. And so we're just going to kind of pick up. So very briefly, because missing data, I think, is a fascinating topic. I think it's one that we talked about in the prior episode, both being on defense. And today we're going to talk about being on offense. And so I think the prior episode on missing data being on defense is how do you handle it? How do you evaluate it? Do you examine different patterns? What are methods available for dealing with it? But it's kind of a passive, oh crap, this happened to me, now I have to deal with it. And today we're going to talk about, all right, let's take control of the situation, is let's move to offense. Very, very briefly, complete case data, we have an M by P data matrix, N individuals, P variables, and when we have complete case, every individual responds on every variable. Now, what almost all of us have in one way or another is an M by P data file that has some subset that have dots in it. So why may cases be missing observations? There are a variety of reasons. There could be fatigue. People could get tired and filling it out and start skipping. You could ask a sensitive question. They don't want to respond to it. They're disengaged and just click through. I was in a project once where there was a do loop error and it was supposed to be a gate Mm. where if you said yes, you got five items. If you said no, you got another five items. And if you said no, it jumped over the five items. So there's a computer error. Or you do longitudinal and people drop out over time, attrition. So there are a lot of different reasons why they might be missing. How they're missing is the really interesting part. There are three general things we talked about. Missing completely at random, where it's a truly random process, where the missing cases are unrelated to either the variables you do have or the missing case itself. Missing at random. They can be systematically missing with variables that you do have in the data file but are not missing as a function of the variable itself. And then there's missing not at random, and that's kind of the poke in the eye. There's a circularity as the case is missing because of the value of the missing case. A data file can be characterized by one or more likely all three of those at once. The MNAR is a lot of interesting research going on on that, but we really can't do anything about that quite well right now, we really want to work under the MAR assumption, which is we have variables in our data set, they're associated with the missing, and we can bring them to bear in our analyses. There are two modern methods for dealing with this, multiple imputation. You generate multiple data files using an imputation model, fit multiple models, gather together the results and make inferences on that. There's full information maximum likelihood where there is no imputation of the data in that way. And each case brings whatever data it has to contribute to the likelihood to support that part of the model. And there are a lot of similarities between these. There are some dissimilarities. And we talk about those on the prior episode. Where we left off at minute 81 was... If we have these modern methods, could we use those to our advantage? And that's what we're going to talk about today, because the answer is an unambiguous yes. Absolutely. So we both, I think, landed on full information maximum likelihood as being a method that we gravitate toward possibly more than multiple imputation, even though we like multiple imputation and see its advantages in certain places and even in combination under some circumstances with FIML. One of the main ideas that underlies what we're going to talk about, and I alluded to this before, or we did, is that 
Each datum carries with it some information, but that doesn't actually make all data equal. And just to give you an example, when we think of how much power do we have and getting bigger sample size and all of that, um, which we've talked about to varying degrees, it's always about the power to detect something. And as we joked about before, you know, the power of what? Well, in some complex models, we talk about power to detect a variety of different parameters that we care about. And each person doesn't necessarily inform the estimation and testing of those parameters to the same degree. I'll give you a couple of examples. One is we might have someone who is missing a lot of data, but we have other people who have very, very similar patterns uh, in the data that they do have. And that might make that person's contributions, you know, not as informative as this, that person maybe it had some very different pattern. On the other hand, just to give a very silly example, imagine that we accidentally put the same variable into our data set twice, but on one of them we had some missing values. Well, in that case, we wouldn't view those missing values as being problematic at all because we had all of the information captured in the, uh, in the other variable. So each datum carries with it a certain amount of information. That information might inform parameters differently, and part of it has to do with the other individuals in the data set and the other variables that we have that correlate to varying degrees. Given that we understand that that's the case, then the question is now, is there a way to leverage that in some way to create a design that might make people less fatigued or that might cost less and just generally might increase the validity of the data that we get so that people are more attentive? And so what we're really, really going to talk about, I think, is not waiting for missing data to happen, but seeing the advantages of possibly creating designs where we are in control of the missingness. So in control that we can legitimately define a circumstance with talking narwhals and data that are missing completely at random. And there are a number of such designs. One thing that I like keeping cognizant and thinking about these missing by design approaches is you're absolutely right. There's efficiency issue. There's a cost effectiveness issue. There are advantages that go beyond just that, that we can have a shorter questionnaire or that we can demand less of our subjects. For example, you might select subset of items that are more developmentally appropriate across different ages. We have some corpus of items that we give to all kids, but you raised this in a prior episode when we were talking about maybe invariance, I think, mm -hmm. but this issue of developmentally sensitive measures that you continue to change the measures over time. Somebody out there is sitting in traffic who does IRT and end of grades assessments and are going, uh-huh, <laughs> because this is classic, mm -hmm. right? Vertical equating. Mm -hmm. You ask third graders easy math questions, core math questions, and hard math questions, and those hard math questions at third grade are then the same easy questions in fourth grade, but then there's a new corpus of core questions in fourth grade and hard questions in fourth grade that are easy questions in fifth grade. And it goes on down. And so it's just, I'm belaboring a point that it goes beyond just efficiency, but enhances construct validity, enhances internal validity, enhances external validity. There are many, many reasons why we want to seriously consider these approaches in practice. And among all of those, I'll come back to this one, because this one tends to be one of the biggest motivating factors for people to dig into these designs that we'll talk about in a little bit. And that just is cost at the end of the day. Yes, there are great validity arguments and developmental arguments, and all of those are wonderful. At the end of the day, when you are designing a study, when you're trying to get someone to fund a study, you can sort of hear the sales pitch. Imagine I told you that you don't need 500 subjects. You only need 386 subjects arranged in the following pattern. You also get these steak knives. Hold on. So that's really what we're going to talk about, being very clever in the nature of design to try to retain the same information, to have the same power to be able to detect what you consider to be the key parameters in your model for what is generally a much, much lower cost. People who have suffered through classes with me have heard me say this before. 
the podcast is like many other things we do. What we're doing is we're opening a door for people and we're shining the flashlight around in there saying, look, there's some really cool stuff in there. And if you need to go in that room, we just want you to be aware of what's in there. I never expect that at the end of an episode, anybody will be expert in any of the things that we're talking about, but maybe they will just have a greater awareness of the issues and maybe be cognizant of a place that they might choose to go a little bit later on. I thought we were doing the podcast because we didn't want to work at our day job. <laughs> anymore check was i'm mistaken on that no <laughs> what i find fascinating is people were talking about these kinds of designs in the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. what's interesting is the designs themselves go back half a century the problem was when you did these designs and got the missing data, we didn't have the technology to fit models to those data. I just don't want to fool ourselves in thinking the designs are novel. The designs go back decades and decades. What's novel is we can now finally deal with the data that come from those designs, given the FIML and MI and other approaches that we have available now. Great point. Absolutely right. So if I throw a dart at that some of the different designs that we could do, how about if we just go with whatever I land on? Go. Multiform designs. Can we talk about that? Yes. Respect the dart. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's your dart. <laughs> okay. So multiform designs is uh, sort of as the name implies, we have multiple different measures that we want to administer that might be in the form of forms. Let's imagine just a measure of, let's say, depression. What's another measure that people often study in relation to depression? Can you throw something at me? Anxiety. Anxiety, good. So we have a measure of depression, an inventory. Uh, we have a measure of anxiety, and I'll just throw burnout in there. So someone is interested in studying the relations among anxiety and depression and burnout. Well, you can imagine that we have these three inventories, and maybe more, of course, and we would like to understand the relations among anxiety and burnout and depression. But that's a lot of stuff to be asking of people. And maybe it's reasonable to do. Maybe maybe if we do it, though, we're a little bit concerned about people being fatigued from going through these inventories, etc. So one possibility, as the name implies, a multi-form design, is that we could administer not all of these inventories to everybody. That is one possible way to go about this. So we might have a subgroup of individuals to whom we do the burnout and the anxiety inventories, another subset of individuals to whom we administer the anxiety and the depression inventories, and then the third group would be the burnout and the depression inventories. So we have these three groups, each of whom gets two of those particular inventories. Now, the beauty of this, or multiple beauties of this, is that the different subgroups inform the different relations that we have. All together, they're contributing information on two out of the three, so they have overlap. And this is the beauty. We randomly assign people to these groups. So when we talk about what's the nature of the missing data, we decide, right? We throw a dart at people and say, you are uh, in this particular group. It is also common in these types of designs, and there are very variations on this design that I'm sure we'll get into at least a little bit. You might also have a group that does take all three of these measures at the same time. The nice thing about that is, A, you have a group for whom you can look at all of these relations within that group. You can also try to understand whether there are fatigue effects or other quality of information effects by looking at how these cohorts overlap. John Graham has several papers that lay this out really nicely. Mm -hmm. And we've established, I like symmetry, especially when it comes to mashed potatoes and mm -hmm. other similar casseroles. John lays out some of these tables that show how you can design these where they are very pleasingly symmetric mm -hmm. to me. And so... <laughs> In a 13 strokes of deodorant kind of way. <laughs> no, that's weird. We established that was weird. Symmetry was fine. Okay. All right. Weird, weird, weird. Mm -hmm. You can build out these very simple tables where you subset the sample by just making up numbers, say 25%. And so there's subsample A, B, C, and D. And then you have columns running across the top of one, two, three, four, and five. And each of those is some block of items. And you can start putting in really nice patterns. Group A gets the odd numbers. Group B gets the even numbers. Group C gets whatever. Group D gets whatever. 
again, we are going to belabor this analogy just because our podcast would be half as long if we didn't belabor <laughs> something. Any row is incomplete, right? So it's like that music piece. Mm -hmm. So last night I was sitting next to Alyssa. She and I were playing together and there are all these measures of rest and then we get two measures of these weird ass upbeat tied 16th notes. Mm -hmm. And then we have three measures of rest. Well, that's our row mm -hmm. where we're missing. We have complete, we have missing. But when you look down the entire table marginally, right? Look at the margins across the four rows of A, B, C, and D then you have complete case data. Some subset of people responded to all the items in the aggregate. So it's a very logical and symmetrically pleasing mm -hmm. way of examining these kinds of designs. It is, and the melody conveys, right? That's the idea. If you had four trumpet players all playing the same melody, certainly we would get the melody. If you took one and had that person play the whole melody, another person drop out one measurement, in the end, the information would be retained. If not with the same force or volume, the information would still be retained. Now, remember, one of the golden rules of quantitude is you don't get something for nothing. Mm -hmm. And we do have to think throughout that we are making assumptions in order to do this. We have to keep that paramount. We are assuming that those empty cells, or when Alyssa and I are counting our three measures and Jay and Sean are playing their measures, mm -hmm. that had Alyssa and I played those three measures, we would have been the same as Jay and Sean playing those three measures. We are assuming that those individuals, had they given responses, that they would have been similar in function and form to those who did give, but were using their data to help cover those that did not. So never lose sight that we got to pay the reaper. Part of what helps us feel better about that is the idea that we randomly assigned who would be playing and not playing in those different measures. Mm -hmm. That helps us to some extent. We also can check some things in our larger designs. As I mentioned, we can make some comparisons because what we have are these different cohorts that even though the gods of randomness, we hope have made them equal. In fact, maybe they haven't. Maybe taking that depression inventory first makes something else mm -hmm. happen when you're taking these other inventories. I don't know, but the cool thing is that I might actually be able to, to suss that out a little bit with this multiple cohort design. So rather than just taking all of these cohorts of data, putting them into one big cauldron, stirring it up and letting FIML sort out the bodies, I can actually make comparisons across these cohorts too to help diagnose assumptions to some extent, which is a nice thing. This goes back to it's not just saving money. Mm -hmm. is if we have complete case data and do it all exactly the same way, we can't evaluate things like item order, which we know to exist, is we know if you ask this and then that and then flip it, you actually can change the responses depending on the order of how you present the items. Well, if we approach it in this experimental design kind of way, we can make that a testable hypothesis because instead of having A, B, C, and D, we also have E, F, G, and H where we do a randomized block design, like a round robin kind of mm -hmm. design, where some get the first 10 items of depression, some get the first 10 items of anxiety, and everybody mixes and matches. Yeah. It becomes, again, an opportunity to test things that we wouldn't otherwise. But we just have to keep reminding ourselves of those empty cells of what assumptions are we making of what those individuals would have given had we asked them. For example, I'm going to belabor the analogy further, yeah. is Sean is a much better player than I am. Unambiguously better. <laughs> All right, so if Sean plays the two measures and I played the two measures, those are not necessarily interchangeable and quite likely they're not because Sean can play upbeat tied 16th notes <laughs> and I kind of fake my way through it. So we are not necessarily interchangeable. There is a commitment among trumpets that if anyone leaves their trumpet unattended, <laughs> It is the responsibility of the other trumpets to mess with their horn. All right, this even happens in concerts, uh -huh. that you have a commitment that if you're going to play the trumpet is that you are dedicating yourself to screwing with the guy on your left and your right if given the opportunity. <laughs> and one night we were in rehearsal and Sean stepped out and he left his horn. 
Yeah. Now, anybody who plays and is thinking about it, you literally take your trumpet with you to the bathroom <laughs> and you just hold it under your arm. And he left it and I was sitting next to Sean and everybody in the row, there are like 10 of us, all of them look down and we're looking at me like, what are you going to do? Yeah, it's your job. It's my job. Yeah. And so trumpet valves are directional. They have to face forward mm -hmm. because of the way they're chambered. And so a classic one is you flip a valve around backwards and then screw it back in. Other ones are you fill the lead pipe with water, you <laughs> drop a pencil down, you do all these things. But I flip the valve. Sean comes back. He picks up. He starts playing. He plays first part on a lot of stuff because he's so talented immediately he recognizes what's happened mm -hmm. and the son of a starts playing with his first two valves <laughs> using alternative valves bending notes when he needs to uh -huh. and all of us were just sad wow and then when we break without saying a word he flipped it back around uh -huh. but i was like i knew i should have poured water in the lead pipe <laughs> if you just ask ask sean if he can come up and play with tate uh <laughs> I'd appreciate that. I will indeed. All right. So we have this beautiful matrix of cells that are wonderfully balanced. So what? So how is there a way? I'll jump back. We'll do a little pop quizzy because mm -hmm. that's still one of my favorite episodes. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that we have any formal tests of the assumption that we're making about missing this? Or do we have to just suck it up and say Sean and Patrick are exchangeable in whether they're playing these parts or these parts? There are model-based ways that go back to some of the original formulations of full information maximum likelihood a la Allison, etc., where you run multiple models simultaneously on these different randomly assigned groups, you can constrain or test in other ways the corresponding parameters that you get from these different groups to see whether or not there are differences, whether or not there are effects associated with whether it's item ordering or the missingness design that you have. And that to me is a tremendous strength. Is that what you were thinking about? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we have this, go back to the simpler table of where we have A, B, C, and D, which are 25 percentiles of whatever our sample size is. That's actually a grouping characteristic of the individuals within that letter. So we have four nominal groups, A, B, C, and D, and there are various ways that we can incorporate those to test, are there systematic differences in item order presentation? All of these in a standard complete case data are typically confounded. Everybody has the same item order and everybody gets to the Hancock measure of toxic masculinity <laughs> in the final two minutes of the questionnaire mm -hmm. and they're fatigued. But in these kinds of approaches, well, for 25% of them, we give them your questionnaire first, mm -hmm. 25 second, 25 third, 25 fourth. And again, it becomes a testable hypothesis. And it's not just saving money, which unambiguously it does, mm -hmm. but now we're examining these other kinds of factors in terms of item ordering and things like that. It's a very powerful framework. And again, you know, you think about missing data as being this nuisance. In fact, you can leverage this to do all kinds of incredibly cool things. There's a couple of little points, maybe they're not so little, that I just wanted to mention as we ride out this design a little bit and then maybe transition into the next type of design. One is that, you know, we were saying... 25%, 25%, 25%, 25%. And that, that feels very natural and symmetric. But in fact, you have control over that as well. And you can do a power analysis to the extent that that's useful to feel out what balance of the sample sizes are necessary to preserve the things that are important for you to test. And it may not be 25, 25, 25, 25, right? There might be some parameters that you really want to accentuate, um, retain information to be able to test, and others that are really just sort of freeloaders or what I call peripheral parameters in your model that are really just not so interesting. So you have control over that aspect of your design as well that you can be very deliberate in how you do it. I'm really glad you raised that because absolutely, and indeed, you could have 100% of the sample get certain core mm -hmm. sets of items and then have subsets get other ones. You know, maybe it's even piloting kind of things. Mm -hmm. You know, they don't do this anymore, I don't think. 
But in the SAT, it was always maddening because one of the tests was uh, didn't count. It was they were piloting. But you don't know which one. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Exactly. There are many situations where that's exactly what you would want to do, right? All of us, there are parts of our models, our measures, our analyses that are central to our interests, and then other parts that are less so. So they don't have to be completely symmetric. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But it's nice. I'm feeling uncomfortable. I I know, but it's still nice. The other thing that I wanted to raise is that, you know, I set this example up with depression and anxiety and burnout and talking about doing whole inventories. There's nothing that requires you to do whole inventories either, right? The missingness that you can plan would be that everybody gets some strategic subset of the burnout items and some strategic subset of the anxiety items, some strategic subset of the depression items. So you can either do missingness in this block fashion, or you can do it by breaking it up and going into the item level. And there are merits uh, for one, merits for the other, and we, we don't need to unpack all of those. I just wanted to convey that there's no law that says you have to keep everything at this whole set of item level. Are you okay if I transition into maybe some longitudinal designs? Ooh, can I throw a dart? Go. Yeah, well, it was going to land on longitudinal oh. designs, so I guess that... <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, so... What the hell was that noise? That, that, was, that was like a dart noise. Let me try. What, no? That- that's a horrible dirt noise. <laughs> okay, I'm going to work on it's that. It's like you're snorting cocaine. <laughs> Isn't it more like a thwack or okay. doink? <laughs> okay, I'm working on that. All right. Jeez. Thanks. Yeah, that one. Your voice skills, I have never mm. met somebody that have your voice skills. That one. <laughs> All right. They're not perfect, right? My voice skills. I come by them illegitimately. <laughs> okay. So let's imagine a longitudinal design where we want to measure people at multiple time points. And usually we're doing the same measures, although we'll deviate from that. But I could do the same thing that we talked about. Let's imagine I wanted to measure kids at fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade. And what I could do is I could have a design where I measure a block of kids at fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. And then I have a block of kids that I measure at fourth, sixth, and seventh, etc. So we could have a design that really mirrors what we talked about in the previous design, where we are just randomly assigning kids to be measured at these time points. For me, that's the very natural segue from the design that we talked about into the longitudinal world. But it's far from the only type of design that we can do in the longitudinal world. Do you want to work from that basic framework and sort of blow it out to the, you know, cohort sequential and the stuff that ties back to Bell a little bit? Yeah, so this can be characterized as playing defense versus playing offense. So this is something I've dealt with for the last 20 years in my own work. It is more of a defensive approach. Now, there are many, many advantages, but again, it's kind of like playing poker and you're dealt your cards and you have to play them. That's a lot of the work that I've done myself is the data have come to me in this form and we've been able to use these kinds of designs to deal with that and and to actually take advantage of it. But then where we can segue is, given that we have these abilities, we can design longitudinal studies in a very powerful way. Like the multi-form stuff I love, the Mm -hmm. longitudinal stuff I love even more. Mm -hmm. Part of it is almost nobody is going to give you federal money to do a cross-sectional design anymore. The days of going in and getting a significant grant for one time period are, I think, long gone, Mm -hmm. unless there's something very unique in what you're studying. The coin of the realm right now are repeated measures, and I think appropriately so. We'll have future episodes on talking about that. So let's teleport back to when I'm a graduate student. I'm working with Lori Chasson. It's a big observational study of children with and without an alcoholic parent. The first three waves of data... The kids were 11 to 15 at wave one, 12 to 16 at wave two, 13 to 17 at wave three. The analyses we did back in the late 80s and early 90s is you organize time by wave. So there was wave one, wave two, wave three, right? What can possibly go wrong with that? You have three assessments, you have three waves. Again, in the spirit of you get what you pay for is if you were funded to do three waves of data collection, you have three time points. Well, there's this age heterogeneity, so we're going to just use age at wave one as a covariate. 
All right, and so I have a couple of papers where we have early, early growth models. I mean, like really early. I was struggling to learn this, and I really owe Steve Roudenbush and Jack McArdle, who I cold call. I called them at their office. They had no tie. They didn't know who I was, and both of them answered the phone and helped me as a grad student. It was just really remarkable. That's the, that's our community, right? And that, exactly. that's wonderful. I have the first edition of Bryken Roudenbush's book. I have it still on my shelf where on the inside cover, I have Roudenbush's phone number written because I had looked it up in the phone book (laughs) and called him. And so we have this three-time point growth model and then we control for age. Well, that was not an ideal way of going about doing it because think about it. Yes, at wave one, we have one assessment, but we have 11, 12, 13, 14, and 15-year-olds. All right, so going back to Bell in the early 50s, let's think about time a little more creatively. Our youngest that we observed in the three waves was 11. Oldest was 17. We have ages from 11 to 17. So now imagine the columns are age 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And then at any given wave, a kid gave their data at that particular age. All right, so some were 11 at the initial time point, some were 12 at the initial time point, some were 13 at the initial time point. And so now we have these cohorts. Take, for example, age 13. Some were 13 at the first assessment, Mm -hmm. some were 13 at the second assessment, some were 13 at the third assessment. We can spread this out, and now it's a missing data problem. Because we have ages 11 to 17 that we obtained at least one observation from. We have seven unique ages, Mm -hmm. but only three repeated assessments. The term is sometimes called an accelerated longitudinal design. And now we can fit models where we look at seven ages, even though they came from three assessment periods. Now, what's interesting is a couple of people have written very appropriate criticisms of some work I did where I did what I described with the three waves and covariant for age, but there's a little time transport problem. Mm -hmm. I wrote a paper in 97 that I did this. It was accepted in 96. I did the analyses in 95. There were none of these missing data approaches that were easily accessible. I had no choice Mm -hmm. to do but by wave. But now that we have these new ones, you can stretch out time in this way, and it's an extraordinarily powerful approach, verging on magic. Mm -hmm. How do you get a six or seven year period out of three repeated assessments? Well, it's exactly the same as the multi-form. It's just instead of the forms, now we're organizing on chronological age. Yeah, it's, it's very clever very potent way to be able to look at larger spans of time in shorter amounts of time with a pretty important assumption as opposed to me deciding who is going to be getting these forms or that forms. In this case, I don't randomly assign who is 11 years old at this time point. I don't randomly assign who is 14, but rather I go out to those subpopulations and I might randomly choose 11-year-olds and 14-year-olds and that kind of thing. So in one of the assumptions in some of these accelerated designs is that when these 11-year-olds become 14, they will be 14-year-olds who are like the people who are currently 14. The idea of that we're going to try to build this bridge over time and we're splicing together these segments with varying degrees of overlap in them. And the assumption is that 14 is 14 is 14 is 14. But the beauty of these designs, as we said before, is that you can test for cohort effects for these types of designs to see whether or not some of these assumptions upon which these very, very cool designs are built are actually reasonable. And if there are challenges associated with cohort effects, you can build those in. Miyazaki and Roudenbush have a wonderful psych methods paper on exactly this and models for how to test cohort effects and how to incorporate them. This is something we wrestle with in our own work. So imagine 15-year-olds. You're assuming that a 15-year-old is exchangeable. We used that word a little bit earlier, Mm -hmm. exchangeability. 15 years are exchangeable whether they were assessed in wave one, wave two, or wave three. 
Well, a lot of times that's not unreasonable, right? If waves are six months apart or 12 months apart, it also, of course, depends on what you're studying as to whether you believe there to be these cohort effects. And I don't lose much sleep over thinking that 15-year-olds are exchangeable over a 24 or 36 month period. Mm -hmm. But we've spent a lot of years working on these integrative data analysis approaches where we have combined existing longitudinal studies where there were 15 year olds in 1985, 15 year olds in 1995, mm -hmm. and 15 year olds in 2005, and we're studying substance use. Yeah. All right, so think about how things have changed, the social appropriateness of smoking. I'm in the psychology building here at Carolina. There's a room downstairs that has ashtrays still from where students would smoke in class. Could you imagine <laughs> teaching and having a student light a cigarette? I mean, mm -hmm. it would be like the same as if they pulled down their pants and just went to the bathroom in the wastebasket. I mean, you'd be appalled. Exactly the same. <laughs> I'm from Denver. I grew up in Denver and I go home to see my family a couple of times a year. Well, recently, Colorado legalized marijuana. Mm -hmm. My brother and I brought our families up skiing. There was, uh, I love spring skiing. And we went up in June to a basin and we're walking in the parking lot and there are people tailgating before getting up to ski where they have bongs out and they're smoking pot and it's legal mm -hmm. and nobody bats an eye. So what you have to do is say, well, what does it mean to assess marijuana use in a 15-year-old in a place where they're walking through a parking lot and adults are smoking marijuana around them mm -hmm. versus 15-year-old when I was in high school that that was mm -hmm. really serious drug use. Like the marijuana smokers in my high school were the bad boy delinquents. And so these are things that we have to take great care in modeling. And we have ways of incorporating this information into the analysis to try to adjust to varying degrees. Now, what I just described was playing on defense. This is how the data came to me. We can turn to saying, all right, let's do a white sheet design of a longitudinal study how can we design our data collection to take full advantage of these kinds of missing data designs? Absolutely. And just like in the last type of design that we talked about, you can identify what are the key parameters of interest? What are the key aspects of growth that you're interested in? Do I need to concentrate more of my data gathering toward the ends of the time period. So depending on the functional form that you're interested in understanding over time, linear, nonlinear, et cetera, you might find that data gathering is better concentrated at the beginning and the end. Or if there's a particular bend that you think occurs in either a spline type model or something that's nonlinear, you might find that it's really important to gather a concentration of information around where you think that is going to occur. So based on your theoretical knowledge and doing some version of power analysis ahead of time, you can very strategically decide who gets what and how much, et cetera, as you, as you plan this out. And I love that of thinking about sensitive periods, thinking about which part of the developmental trajectory do you want to have more dense assessments and maybe less dense assessments and then more dense assessments? Imagine you're doing some kind of preventive intervention and you have a multiple repeated measure baseline and then you have some treatment intervention and you have some follow-up and think about where do you need more repeated observations to get better estimates of this individual variability and change over time? Mm -hmm. And again, it's taking control over the design. That's what I get so excited about is to say, look, we can, it doesn't have to be symmetric. No matter how happy that makes me, we can have dense measures and then kind of fall back and take two or three or four measures spaced over a period of time and then have more dense measures and be able to fill in that entire developmental trajectory in a way that we wouldn't otherwise. And then we can cross the accelerated longitudinal design that we're talking about with the multi-form design. Because how cool is this, uh -huh. right? We talked about, we don't see a lot of five-year-olds in knife fights. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. We don't see a lot of 25-year-olds biting. There are a few, and they're mm-hmm. interesting people to hang out for a period of time. But what we can do is picture one of those tables that I described, cohort one, two, and three. But within that, we can give younger ages items that are more appropriate for symptomatology for younger that then transitions to adolescent that transitions to adulthood. And you can cross both of these simultaneously. And now we're really off to the races. Oh, the, the potential for these is huge. And I would say as yet untapped, right? I mean, I'm starting to see some of these types of designs uh, woven into what I see on grant panels, but there's there's just so much rich potential to get to maintain power, to maintain your commitment to getting the best information out of the individuals that you can. It's great. And there is a, yet another type of design that we have to talk about. So I will ask you, did you want to have any other last words in the longitudinal space for now? No, let's hear what you're without noise of the dart, unless you've worked on it while I was talking. I have is why don't you throw a final dart? I'll do it, okay? Yeah. Flop. Okay. <laughs> that is precisely as gifted as your voice skills, generally speaking. Um <laughs> You would expect nothing less. Nope. You're you're internally consistent. The last type of design that we can talk about here would be something that's called, and we mentioned this in the missing data episode, two-method measurement designs. And there are different ways that we can enter this particular arena, but I would say the core idea is that there are expensive ways of measuring things and there are cheap ways of measuring things. And I say that not just cost-wise, but I also say that in terms of validity. Imagine we wanted to measure classroom attentiveness of kids. And there are some cheaper ways to do it. So we could ask teachers, you know, how attentive is young Patrick in class? We could gather that kind of information. And that's fairly inexpensive. But we could also come in and we could observe young Patrick's behavior in the classroom and fill out some sort of inventory about how attentive or maybe more accurately inattentive he might be in class. One of those will be very hard to get logistically. It's very costly in terms of human resources. The problem might be, though, with the cheaper measure where we just ask on a scale of one to nine, how attentive is Patrick, that bias could be introduced. Bias that the teacher has in in his or her ability to observe what's going on or bias with regard to you, Patrick. Or when we do self-reports, if we were gathering data very cheaply by having you fill out an inventory on how attentive you are as a child, right? There might be other things that are creeping in. And the idea is that when we get this information together in the same place, some really expensive measures and some really cheap measures, the nice thing is that the expensive measures are going to help, and I'm going to use this term very loosely, help us to calibrate and pull out the good information that's in the cheaper sources. So if you imagine a model where, and this type of model might be more meaningful to some people, less meaningful to others. I have a model where I have as classroom indicators of classroom attentiveness, some of the cheaper teacher rating measures, and then some of the observation measures where we have someone come into the classroom. When I put those all into the same place, what those have in common, I feel very comfortable talking about that as attentiveness, as a construct. The beauty about this where missing data come in is that I don't have to get all of the data on all of those measures. So I might get lots of data on the cheaper teacher report measures. And then for some people, I will get that information, but I will also get information via the more costly observation method. And once I get all of that into the same model, the presence of the good overlapping with the cheap really helps me to pull out the good stuff from that information. The way I think about it, and you're going to tell me this is a really dumb analogy, is that I have have someone with a cheaper instrument playing and a more expensive instrument playing simultaneously. The melody is better carried by the other, but at least I hear what's going on in the other thing. I don't know. I probably just butchered that analogy. No, I, a parallel is me playing and Sean playing. Okay. <laughs> even, even with a valve that's been messed with. Right. I- <laughs> Uh-huh. It's okay. It's Excuse okay. me, I got to go practice. Uh-huh. 
if you think about a lot of the kinds of measures that that people are interested in really are exceedingly costly. FMRI measures, for example, you know, there are things for which we might get what we consider to be, you know, not necessarily definitive, but much better measures of things in an FMRI than we might get through some other inventory that has otherwise been used. But we cannot put in everyone in the FMRI. We cannot administer one-on-one assessments to every single kid. So having this combination of measures where that subset of individuals gets both really can be a very, very powerful thing in, in our models. You're right. I don't think this is used to the extent that it otherwise could be, as I think there's a tremendous amount of promise. Where things get really exciting is to take what you're describing and to build that into separate studies, right? So now we're talking, even looking further down the field, is let's say you have an RO1, I have an RO1, and somebody else has an RO1, where we each are doing kind of our own thing and you're an fMRI guy and I'm a behavioral observation guy and somebody else is a parent teacher report approach. We're all doing our own thing, but before going into it, we all agree that we'll give the same corpus of items to all of our subjects. Mm-hmm. And five years from now, we can use some pretty well-established vertical equating methods that have a lot of overlap with our invariance episode, Mm -hmm. which is, can we bolt these together, identify invariant items, put them on the same number line, and they make inferences as if we had parent-teacher report, observational report, and fMRI data all in a single meta-study. I think there's huge excitement about that. NIH is talking about it and it's in certain priorities. And I think that there are a lot of movements toward doing that. To my knowledge, I have yet to see a group that has laid out in the way that I describe. Mm -hmm. People will say, well, we use the same five items or the 10 items. But I mean, really, you know, going back to that white sheet design is let's do this in anticipation of getting together in five years because we're all still going to be working in five years. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be cool to have these linkages to do this thing that we can't do on our own? Tremendous power there and maybe aligns with some pre-registration notions of projects and, and so forth. So I would very much like to, as we say, put a pin in that topic to be able to unpack it very fully. Are you okay if we sort of pull this one together? Yeah, I think this is a good place because this will transition to some later episode on the IDA stuff. Okay, so go forward, pull out your three darts, step back, and give me an executive summary. Okay. Plan missing data designs leverage the power of modern missing data methodology, but you are an active participant in the missingness rather than a passive reactor to it. You will still get your missingness, make no mistake. There will still be unplanned missingness that occurs. But the interesting thing is that through some of these designs, in fact, you might minimize some of that because you have put less burden on your respondents. You have made it easier to track people longitudinally, et cetera. So you might, it might actually help with the other problem as well. But by leveraging the abilities of modern methods, such as full information, maximum likelihood, you can control uh, in a very powerful way the nature of the missingness, plan your design very, very carefully to raise the volume on some instruments and lower the volume on other instruments, if I wanted to torment that one last time, so that you can address your questions with better fidelity of information to the constructs that you care about, maybe better willingness of your of your subjects to participate, and at the end of the day, also a smaller price tag. And where this gets really exciting, and I think you communicated that nicely, is in the potential confluence of these designs, right? Putting the pieces of these together and really tailoring designs to specific uh, circumstances that you might face, whether they be longitudinal, whether they cut across multiple types of measures or many different constructs. I especially like your reminder that we still have missing data from all the usual sources and we still have to deal with it in exactly the same way. We have to consider mechanisms. We have to consider auxiliary variables. We have to consider all of those issues. 
But now picture in your mind's eye your n by p data matrix, and there are a field of numerical values, but there are a field of dots. Some of those dots are there because we made them be. Some of those dots are there because we tried to get something and they're not there. Mm -hmm. And we have all the mechanisms to deal with both of those sources. Again, it's taking control of the process. It's moving from defense to offense and making these things work for us, which is going to help us achieve what our motivating goal is. How do we do something that we're not currently able to do? And these kinds of designs allow us to test hypotheses in ways that weren't previously available, and that's moving our science forward. I encourage people who are not familiar with these types of designs to go check them out, learn things about it. There are a number of didactic pieces on this, things that are out there to help you in designing these types of studies. So absolutely go check that out. All right. Well, I am out of ideas. Yeah. I should probably go practice my bridge over troubled waters. <laughs> All right. And then come up and play with Tate soon, okay? I will have Tate help me All right. with the Tide 16. Who puts a dotted 8th Tide 16th on an upbeat? Who does that? <laughs> yeah, just let Sean handle that. <laughs> I usually do. On that note, thank you very much. Uh -huh. <laughs> I just got that. Uh-huh. Hey, thanks very much, and thanks to everybody out there for joining us. Uh, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. You have been listening to Quantitude, so fraught with threats to validity that it almost qualifies as an econ podcast. We've received funding from the Association for Citing Textbooks Without Identifying Page Numbers. I mean, seriously, I'm sure Boland talked about that thing somewhere in his 514-page book. By Chalk yearning for the days when teachers would actually say something spontaneously during lecture. And by the National Society of Indecisiveness, who for more than a century has proudly stood behind the values of... What? No, what do I... We can't change them. What, you guys? I thought we agreed on this. This is most definitely not NPR. NPR.